Hello and welcome to the Dive Deep, Climb High podcast. I'm Mel Luizu and together with my guests, we explore all different aspects of leadership in higher education. With inspiring stories, practical tips and a little bit of fishiness, this show will help you dive deep into the leader you are and climb high, unleashing your power and potential. Dive deep, climb high, can-do leadership in a world of can't. Before we get started, have you ever wondered what it would be like to work with a coach on a one-to-one basis? As a master NLP business coach, I work with a variety of people, helping them to articulate and achieve their goals. Research shows that working with a coach is one of the most effective ways to improve your performance at work. Interested? Then why not book in a chat with me using the Calendly link in the show notes. Together, we will dive deep and climb high. Today, we're going to be diving deep into purpose. I met my guest just a few weeks ago at a conference where I was speaking. He attended both my sessions. One was a sound therapy experience. And in the other, we explored how our map of the world influences our actions and behaviors. Checking in for my flight on the way home, we found ourselves stood next to each other. As you do, we struck up a conversation. And that was when he told me that at the conference dinner the previous night, he'd been asked for his conference highlights. And he said that he'd had two, one of which was one of my sessions. How chuffed was I? Now you may be thinking that flattery will get you onto this show, but unfortunately that isn't the case. Having heard a little bit about his map of the world, I wanted to know more. And I learned that he is chief executive of the Affordable Accommodation for Students Association, an organization I'd never heard of. As a not-for-profit housing provider, I was really interested in their operating model. We chatted about this and the importance of having a purpose, not just at work, but personally as well. Hence my invitation for him to be a guest on the show. And I cannot wait to dive into this conversation. So without further ado, please welcome Alan Hilton. Good morning. How are we doing? I think we need to add that I was particularly hungover while standing in that show. We'd been to the conference dinner and I think I'd left at two or three in the morning. And now I am standing uh, at Belfast airport uh, thinking oh my god I feel rough and and thinking oh I've got to talk to somebody there and, uh, and be presentable <laughs> don't ruin the illusion keep the illusion up we're both <laughs> highly professional people and we are having a really intellectual conversation <laughs> I love that and I love the honesty that's going to set the tone for this conversation for sure so where to start I guess it would be really interesting if there are other people out there 
like me that haven't heard of the organization or of you that you share a little bit about your journey and how you've ended up in this space of student accommodation okay well I, I sort of fell into it to be quite honest I mean as, as always I wouldn't say it was a, a great plan I mean I was at university and uh, I got elected as a student union president and I did it for two years. I ran some very successful campaigns and I remember like arranging for six women to abseil off a building in Moorgate actually in the centre of the city of London followed by 2,000 people on a march. And I'm just remembering all that. I haven't thought about it in a long time. I made page two of The Guardian and uh, I still got a picture somewhere. Anyway, that was just an aside. So I was a student union president. And um, I've always been involved in sports too while I was at university. So even though I was on the Labour students, I was more more for um, uh, the time sports people. So I was sports chair and stuff like that. So I was there. And then someone said to me, do you want a job working in this housing association that runs the halls for the university? And uh, at the time, it was just like free accommodation. That was the hook, free accommodation and £12,000 a year. And that was 30 odd years ago. And I thought, I'll do it for six months. And uh, sort of like, say, as an assistant hall manager. And then, I've, you know, so I've gone on. And after two or three years, I was running the whole thing. So now I'm chief executive of this not-for-profit housing association, which is highly successful um, financially. But, but more importantly, we offer the cheapest rents in London, and we are consistently doing that. I mean, we are fortunate in that we've had these buildings a long time, so they're almost free to us now. So it's all right me sitting here smug saying, you know, we're cheap and all these private suppliers are charging lots and lots of money and how virtuous they are. I mean, we're just quite lucky that we've been in this space a long time and are sitting on assets that we've looked after. Uh, but, you know, more importantly, you know, for me, what we do each year is, we, we have students come to us in September and it really does restore my faith in humanity when I see them arrive looking slightly anxious um, with their parents and there's a few tears shed. We watch them and we're giving them a space to be safe and grow in that first year and also to be able to afford it. I mean, they come and live with us if they're British and on a maintenance, full maintenance loan. They can pay the rent. Uh, have enough money to live as long as they do, you know, eight or 10 hours Saturday job or something like that. And they can get by. And that's what we're offering and delivering them. The thing is with students is that the affordability is their biggest concern at the moment. I think I read yesterday in the Night Frank report for you from UCAS research, 77% of students said your affordability was their, their major concern. So, so we're part of delivering all that. But what essentially what we are is, and I think it's nice for me because it combines my values of, of what I was. I mean, coming, I suppose I never really grew up from being a student union president, as it were. I always sort of continued that theme. So I've always been an advocate of students. I mean, okay, it's poacher come gamekeeper, you could argue. You know, I mean, but it's great that you can do that. And it, it means that our staff and everyone that works with us, we're all a purpose-led organisation. We're all clear on our vision and our mission. And so we're relentless in trying to find affordability. I think what I don't like with some charities is they become fat and, and there's always too many staff. 
over time, you know, whereas you've got to be quite lean as well. That doesn't mean you scrimp and save on services. We still offer lots of things for them, but it's about choosing the right ones. And often it seems to be more about the staffing charities than about the customers. And ours is really focused on driving down that cost and making sure it's as cheap as possible. Fascinating organisation. And it's really interesting because hangover or not at Belfast Airport, what I really got from you was your passion. And you've been in the same organisation for all this time. And yet you are still really passionate, really passionate about the purpose and what you do. So I'm interested, what has kept that passion alive for you? It's the purpose again. It's it's the purpose. You can see the benefit it gives to individuals. You can see them grow from arriving in September and then growing, particularly with the pandemic thing as well. What you've seen is, is, you know, a generation coming through now that for two years of their formative years uh, they, they were locked up and then they couldn't go anywhere or do anything you can see there is there is more mental health things but going on but i don't try and get too hooked up on the mental health it's about well-being it's creating well-being for people and i think people is too much of doom gloom it's all mental health it's not it's about well-being and creating a space that allows them to develop their well-being and creates systems that allows them to develop their well-being so we're, we're you know we've gone from offering very limited social events five or ten years ago to putting on events now all the time for students i mean we don't we try not we steer clear a little bit of the alcoholic events you know there'll be something at the start of the year and the end of the year and we try and get them to sort of like think about events that they have to participate in you know and whether that's like pancake day they have to make pancakes in the common room or or you know just something that gets them out we do Fruit Fridays, where they they get do they get a piece of fruit on the reception, or they someone bring a bag actually and fill their bag. But we don't care. The, the smile you get when you see a student walk down, every time they grab a piece of fruit, they smile. They, every time they do not ever not smile. They always smile when they grab that piece of fruit. And and then we do that. And we do quite civilized Sunday afternoon tea every Sunday, and they they mostly get just out of bed, but. You know, all we're doing is I'm putting tea and muffins and tea and crackers and then we'll we'll mix it up and give them tea and crumpets one week. Or, or you know, it's, it's just getting them out and talking to each other. And, and then we have a social rep. They, they come to us with ideas and then we're open to anything, to be quite honest. Considering our other building, which doesn't have a common room, of buying a, a horse box and making it into a mobile cap. And, and then uh, offering free teas and coffees during the week. So, it's seeing now how we add to people and you know there are there are vulnerabilities you know and there are people that do struggle and we're there you know i've been in casualty with people with attempted suicide you know our, our job can change honestly it can change literally by the minute and i actually live on site well i'm sitting in now is one of the bedrooms in my flat and i this is where i live and i work i live with these students and I'm there and uh, I mean, I'm never really on duty. I'm just sort of around. There are people on duty all the time. So I actually live, eat and breathe my job. You know, it's all part of me and, and what I do. And uh, I don't mind it, to be quite honest. I've learned to live with the fact that you live on site and the fire alarm goes off at three in the morning occasionally. And 
you have to deal with it. But generally, I think what I will say is people, very easy to put a downer on students. But I find this generation of young people one of the nicest generation of young people I've ever seen. They're kinder, they're considerate, they're thinking about the environment, they're tolerant of each other, mm. and they're tolerant of different sexualities, of different races, different religions that they weren't so tolerant of. Years. They don't take as many drugs, they don't drink as much. You know, I mean, okay, they may get a few more problems on social media and all the issues that go around sort of like, you know, you have people in flats that, that have fights on social media in the, in the room next door. You know, instead of just knocking on the door and just saying, like, can you turn the noise down? You know, and, and that's the sort of things that you, you do. But over the years, you change and you have to change your business and what you're doing to adapt to what's going on within the environment. And we have to learn all the time. We have to reinvent ourselves. You know, I'm getting old now, I'm 59, and I'm, you still have to be able to relate to them in some way or some form. You can't just be this old git, you know, who's, who's going around sort of moaning about everything. You've got to understand who they are and what they are and appreciate that, you know, as long as they're aligning with your values of the organisation and the values of how we think it should run of equality and diversity and understanding uh, of each other within the halls, then, it, then it's fine. It's only when they try and step out of those values that it becomes a problem. So that's really interesting. You say that you've had to reinvent yourself. A bit like Madonna. Every, every five years, I've got to get something new, or whether that's just a change around what, what I wear and what I do. But every five years, you've got to come up with a new model of yourself to make yourself popular for people, Yeah. <laughs> So you talk about reinventing yourself. You've also talked quite a lot about the importance of working for an organisation that aligns with your values. So in the past 30 years, do you think your values have changed or do you think that they are still the values, intrinsically the values you had when you first joined the organisation? I think they're intrinsically the same values, you know, in terms of the equality and sort of like treating people equally and fairly and uh, understanding different cultures and particularly within the students. But you do have to adapt because the world is changing. And part of being a manager and a leader is you, you have to adapt to what's around. But you don't fundamentally change your values. You know, your values are there and intrinsic within the organisation. And actually, when you say by it's a culture as well, it's culture is the key thing. I mean, culture is the common values, the common goals of the organisation. And fundamentally, the culture hasn't changed. And I believe our culture is one of our competitive advantages because when we get parents' visits, this is prior to the start of term and stuff like that, when we tell them that we're a, you know, a not-for-profit organisation and our culture is different, uh, they're, they're straight away they got they think oh yeah this is the place where you know I, I want my son or daughter to be because they all suddenly understand they're not in it for the profit motive they're in it because they want to look after them we're in it because we, we believe in looking after them and making sure it's a safe place so those those things are about and I don't think often we, we sell ourselves enough in terms of that particular virtue or that that particular part of uh, what we do because it's very appealing particularly to parents who want to know that their son or daughter is going into an environment that they feel is is one that's looking out for them as well yeah, yeah. so i'm interested for you does being 
not-for-profit, is there a correlation between being not-for-profit and the culture that you have? Yes, of course there is, because when we're making a decision, it's based on what's right for the organisation. It's not based on what's right for the shareholders. It's not based on what's right for the bottom line. Everything is always the bottom line. You can only be nice and cuddly if you've got money. You know, and I know that over the years, you, if something goes wrong, you know, say 15 years ago, the, the, the windows were past the day. They were, they were not safe, but it wasn't like, oh, we haven't got the money. We just spent the money. Just we did it because it was more important that they were safe and secure than worrying about the cost of, of replacing all of the windows. And, and, you know, it will always be in our mind that our values become ahead but this is always the quandary because it's like when we get to the take for example choosing the rent level for uh, this year or any year i report to a board of trustees and they, these trustees are sitting there and they come on they do this voluntarily um, and then there's two things going on here one one is what can the students afford yeah which is absolutely nothing because yeah? the students are the maintenance loan is went up to a two and a quarter percent or something like that this year you know, rents all over the sector have gone through the roof because of gas, electricity prices and stuff like that. And then the other side of the equation is what's our uh, profit and loss looking like? What can we afford? But more than that, we're not just thinking about this year. We're thinking about the next 25 to 30 years because we're not thinking about flipping our organisation and selling it in five years time and taking the money out. Yeah. So I'm thinking about I've got a refurb here planned for 2028 in the one building and then another refurb in our other building for 2032. Yeah. And then another one for 2046 in there, because all I am is I'm the steward of these assets for the moment. These assets will be here in two, three, four hundred years time unless we've merged with another charity. So all I am, I'm just in on this ship at the moment and making sure it floats well and goes in a good direction. But I'm not thinking about, like, uh, let's what can I do and can I sell it in five years' time, make lots of money and disappear? Because, you know, I get paid a salary. The trustees don't get any money. So that does change. So you're always making those decisions between values and finance. You know, some of the trustees of the board want to want to go home when making that decision go, oh no, wasn't I wonderful and virtuous today we froze the rent yeah and then they've walked out and they've gone probably gonna answer their husband or wife and say I'm such a good person you know I've, I've sort of like frozen the rent today but the other side of that is that you could do that every year and then we'd be bankrupt in five years whereas it's up to me to have that reality so I'm always wrestling between the values of what you're trying to achieve and the purpose of delivering affordability versus what's realistic and that's that's a moral quandary that happens all of the time and you know and you also have those moral quandaries when you're dealing say with an individual student that's misbehaved or done something wrong the balance of their rights as an individual versus potentially the rights of the community and what they're in and, and i'm making a decision potentially to evict them and you've got to balance those moral things in your brain. Think about what's right for the, the community versus the individual. And you wrestle with those things. Because to me, it's just an hour in my day. But to them, it's one of the most important hours in their life, potentially. Yeah, And you wrestle with those all the time. So you make those judgments. You have to make those judgments very carefully. And you have to be able to sort of go home on a night time and know that you've done the right thing in your soul. And you, Because, you know, you've got to sleep with yourself and then wake up in the morning and know that what you've done is right. Mm. 
those are such great examples about the challenges of being leaders in this type of, of environment or any environment actually is that, that you are constantly balancing almost like conflicting priorities polarities and actually it's where you sit where the organization sits where the driver is is it actually value and contribution or as in a contribution to community rather than profit but also on very very different levels and you've talked a bit about as leaders needing to adapt so in your time over the past 30 years what is one of the major ways that you've adapted to sort of changing environments and circumstances no no because you've got to look at yourself first because you know i mean when i first started doing the job i was 25 and you know you're a different person at 25 and everything's a lot more serious and everything everything's sort of uh yeah, as that age, you, you want to try and make an impression, and you know, and your brain's a lot sharper then than, than it is at fifty nine. And you have to change. I mean, so you you go through a personal journey of understanding yourself and realizing yourself from where you are, and you, you learn your strengths and your weaknesses over the time, and you also learn from your mistakes and how you were. I, I mean, I don't know how have I adapted. I haven't fundamentally adapted because. I am fundamentally who I am. Yeah. You know, I'm me. You know, you learn from your mistakes and you learn and think you think maybe I should have done that differently. And how can I do that better? But these are more technical things that you learn over time or managerial things. Yeah. But fundamentally, if you're a good leader, you have to be yourself. And uh, what I say to people, if you're the sort of person that can do my job, it's quite easy. But if you're not, you could never do it. You could never, ever do it. If you can't walk into a, a group of 200 students and command their attention and get them to want to listen to you, you're in trouble. You're not going to be able to manage a building because if they set against you, they'll win. You know, they will win because there's too many of them and they live a 24-hour life and they're smart. And so, you know, you have to create environments and cultures where they want to work with you and they realise what you're doing and respect you. You're getting them to buy into the culture. And that's all about that leadership messages that you give out. So it's all about like sort of when the start of term, when they arrive, I give them a talk and I, I try and inspire them about the vision of the place and why they're here and what it means to be here and stuff like that. So all of those things are all part of the messages that you get them to buy into. But in terms of your original question, fundamentally, I haven't changed who I am. I probably am a bit less Wolverhampton than I used to be, but that's probably from living in London for so long. And I think with everything, the ability to uh, deal with people at all levels and in different situations is a skill. You're not here to be everybody's best friend either as a leader. You know, you're here to make the right decisions for the organization and stuff like that and then not worry about it that you upset people you know you just have to be a bit thick-skinned and, and just say no sometimes you know you're not here to please everybody i'm not here to be a pleaser for everyone i'm here to make the right decisions for the students for the organization going forward and those traits are there i mean there's you know there's traits as i said to you previously you know, there's also traits of, you know, sociopathic, psychopathic traits that some leaders have. And I think maybe there's elements of that within all, all, all leaders, and not the bad ones, but, 
you know, out of the 20 traits that they talk about, some of them are quite naughty, but out of the 20 traits, so is it John Ronson or whatever, you know, you can see a little bit of yourself in some of them anyway, yeah? You can. So I've just come I've just come on a couple of podcasts and said I'm a psychic. <laughs> Well, we did say you set the tone right at the beginning about honesty and and it is a really (laughs) honest conversation. And I love that. Well, the thing is, I think the ability to be able to laugh at yourself and uh, laugh at your own failings is also a good trait to have as a a leader and and not take yourself too seriously. You know, and and I think people see that the, the humility, I think. People see that sometimes. I mean, you know, I mean, you can talk about, you know, it's like losing charisma. I mean, it's about having that personal confidence and that social confidence and also physical confidence. I think, I think as I've got older, I've, I've tried to physically keep a lot fitter and that physical confidence. And that's all part of like when, you know, when you walk into a room, you walk into a room, if you're a leader, you look like a leader, you know, just the way you walk, the way you gesticulate, the way you, just can stand up there and just sort of like say yes and you can the way you can sort of make people be quiet and uh, the way you can pause when you're saying something the way all those sort of things that you know you just whether they're learned or whether they're they're just part of you know nature or nurture which is the old question regarding leadership you know I, I don't know I mean, it, it's interesting. My first job I had when I was 14 was selling fruit and vegetables on a market store uh, in Wolverhampton. And part of the role in that was to pitch vegetables and, and sort of like shout out and uh, and so I'm not going to do it uh, in the podcast. Okay, it's funny, I can only shout out in a Wolverhampton accent. I can't say it in my current accent. No, it only ever comes out in Wolverhampton. So part of doing that at 14 and standing out there in the cold rain trying to sell fruit and vegetables is all part of my makeup and who I am I suppose and so maybe I've just never stopped becoming a market trader selling fruit and vegetables but what I sell now is the uh, is accommodation visions and security and you yeah. know, who knows that's so interesting I'm smiling away because my grandfather was a fruit and veg man so there you go that's quite interesting that's isn't it but it is and I think it's as you say that experience that we we gather our life experience is what shapes us and yeah, yeah. I know from the session that you attended of mine about understanding our, our map of the world and for me earwigging a little bit about your map is that actually for you purpose isn't just about a purpose at work but having a purpose outside of work and I really liked and you were describing it to the people you were sharing your map with is that you you see your life as a, a Venn diagram. You have family, you have work, and then you have community. Society. Yeah, I mean, like, they all interconnect. So, so you know, I've talked about my work, and obviously my family's important to me, and I have a son, that's just to, to everybody, their families. But then the society, and, and you know, and I've, I've been lucky to get on in my life. I want to give back to society. So I, I set up a football team 25 years ago when... My son was uh, just starting school and and that football team now has uh, me and another parent, Simon. That football team now has uh, an age group every year now through to two adult teams. So that's down in Somerset and I still do that. So I took my son through till he was an adult and then he went off to university and then I dropped back down. So this Saturday I'll be coaching the five and six year olds and we've got three more uh, sessions to go. 
Uh, and it's lovely, honestly. I mean, I say to giving back to society, you are a role model again. You know, you don't turn up to a football session with a fag in your hands and your socks down with your ankles. You know, you're there, you're there to be a role model and to show leadership again to five and six year olds and to to try and get them. And, and, and like it's funny, just, just little things even with them, like what I do with them is I, I make them line up at the start of each session like soldiers. Not me about them being fitness. It's about them understanding being part of a team and the fact that they've got to stay side by side with the soldiers. And it's all about keeping their shape because in the match later on in life, the manager will keep screaming at them, keep your shape, keep your shape. And it's even at that age, I'm telling them to keep their shape. And then after a few months, I get them to, to do a thing called banana where they drop back to the back and stuff like that. And the parents are looking at this thing. Is, this is amazing. My five-year-old is like a soldier running around a football pitch and they're really impressed. But then as it goes on, I let one of them come out and that they become the leader and they have to make sure that everybody else keeps shape. So what I'm doing, even at that age, is I'm teaching them teamwork, decision making, and then I'm teaching them public speaking skills and I'm teaching them being a leader, uh, even at that age. And these are all skills that they will take on. And bear in mind, these kids are now COVID kids and they're, they're quite shy, I've noticed a little bit, but you're trying to teach them all of that and your role not all of them have two parents involved you know you're there sort of like teaching all those things to those kids and it's great too you know you, know, you show them a Cruyff term and they think you're a gop you know it's only a little trick so it is quite rewarding for me so I do that I'm also involved in a church trust around here that gives £700,000 to poverty in Hackney and but they own lots of properties so I help because I've done a masters in real estate I help them with their management of the real estate and I give my time to that too. Uh, and that's all about helping people with the poverty. And we, so we give to the food bank, we give to the night shelter. So I mean, no, I don't get myself involved in the giving bit. I just get my in the doing bit because uh, that's where I can have value. So yeah, those, those are my values. That's where it all aligns. And it keeps me, me healthy. You know, I'm 59 now. I'm trying to think I can't keep on doing all this. But, you know, if you want something done, give it to a busy person. That's what they say. So they all sort of align, you know, and uh, that is around this about who I am and, and uh, what I do. Yeah, but I'm lucky that I have a job where my my values align too. Yeah, yeah, with what I do, and I know the next generation are sort of like are looking for that now. They're all saying when they graduate now, it was always oh, I want to be an investment banker and I want to be this. Now they're saying they want to have social purpose and social value. Um, you know, I've been lucky enough to be part of an organisation that's having that social value through all yeah. those years. I, I mean, just listening to you, I think actually you are very fortunate, but you have also carved that out for yourself. And it, it really feels like you are living your life in alignment with your values, both at work and at home, and that purpose is really clear for you. And I think that is that is great. And that's what we should all aspire to so I feel very fortunate that you came to my two sessions and that I stood next to you as we were checking in to come home so for you when have you had to dive deep into who you are or dealt with a situation that you you'd never dealt with before something that tested you I think I find failure difficult depends on the type of failure sometimes I think what I don't like with organisations is finger pointing. Finger pointing is wrong. Sometimes shit just, just happens, you know, and, and it's no one's fault. It's a combination of factors. 
Um, and if things go wrong, what we should all do as an organisation is we all roll our sleeves up, we all work together, and we all sort of like try and resolve what the problem is. And so, you know, I think I take failure quite quite hard. I suppose that's the nature of being, for all my sort of bravado about sort of like, you know, not worrying about myself and what it is, you do take value quite hard because in the end, ultimately, I'm there to succeed. And ultimately, if I don't succeed, I'll be out of a job, you know, and that's the bottom line. If you're out of a job, you can't provide for your family. You can't do the nice things in life. So you've got to sort of like have success, but you have to accept the fact that it won't always be perfect and, and things will fail. Uh, but it's about how how the organisational culture copes with failure and what it does with failure and, and how it moves forward from failure. It shouldn't be a lessons learned all the time, like how we've got to go back to that. Sometimes circumstances just happen and you have to let that go and not take it personally. But but that is hard for me dealing with, with, with failure. I don't know why that is. I mean, I'm being just trying to speak honestly here, yeah, you know, but... Uh, I'm not trying to give you management speak or textbook speak or anything like that. Yeah, it's not it's not buzzword bingo where I could come up with all the sort of like phrases. You know, I'm just trying to speak a little bit more from the heart. Yeah, yeah? and that comes across so beautifully. So thank you. When have you felt like a fish that climbed a tree? I, I don't know really because it, the first question you said is why is it a tree? Is that the right tree to climb? Maybe there's a different tree. Yeah. And, and so maybe there's a step back first. It's like before I go trying to climb the tree, I need to ask, is that the right tree? You know, or do I chop the tree down and not climb it? Uh, or is there a different tree? Or maybe uh, I could prune the tree. I mean, I'm trying to think if there's something that I, I wouldn't have a go at. You know, I mean, I think we all have strengths and weaknesses. You know, I mean, if you ask me how to plan to get up a mountain and, and a route, I'm rubbish at that. But if you ask me to be the head of the, the the person leading the map that somebody has planned to get up there, I, I can do it. And, and I think it's recognising the strengths and the weaknesses. You know, I, I don't think I have the patience to, uh, when it was with students, you know, when they're, they're crying in front of me and stuff like that and there's all the tears. I wouldn't say I'm the most empathetic person because it's just not me. Not that I don't care. I do care. And it's sad to see them crying and I want to help them. But I'm not your sort of sit-down counsellor type, you know. I, I don't have the skills to do that. I mean, not that any of our staff are counsellors, but, you know, I mean, I, I see it very much in an analytical way of, like, what's the ABC? How can I signpost them? Yeah. When's my next meeting? Now, that sounds terrible and callous. It doesn't mean that I don't care for them. It's just that I understand in your skills and weaknesses. So, but I don't think I've put myself in a position where I, you know, I'm, I'm so a fish out of water who can't climb a tree. I love that. That is such an Alan Hilton response. It has never been offered up before on this podcast. And I love that. It's why that tree? Brilliant. Thank you. As I knew it would be, it's been a really honest and fun conversation. If people want to learn more, if people want to chat to you about your experience and anything to do with the sector, how can they get in touch with you? They can email me on A-L-L-A-N, Alan.Hilton, H-I-L-T-O-N, at A-A-4-S-S-S-Sugar.co.uk. Brilliant. And I will put that in the show notes for people. But, but, you know, I'm no guru. You know, if you speak to my staff, they'll be saying, oh, he's a rubbish leader. You know, he always gets it wrong. 
you know, and, and they'll be moaning and saying, because we've been together, our staff, for such a long time now. We're like a family. We bicker. You know, in the organisations, there's always one disruptor and always somebody, you know. And so, you know, you may have heard some thoughts, but, you know, it's, it's not all sweetness and light, I can assure you. We get by in our own way, but, you know, um, it'll be interesting to see the response from my staff when some of them look at it anyway. Yeah? That honesty is there again. Honestly, thank you so, so much for making me chuckle so much, for embracing honesty and just saying it as it is. Absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much. So it just leaves me to say, what final words of wisdom would you like to leave people with today? You know, it's honesty and integrity. Don't change who you are. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Dive Deep, Climb High podcast with me, Mel Luizu. To help build our community of leadership listeners, please leave me an Apple podcast five-star review. Remember, our fishy adventure doesn't have to end here. Connect with me on LinkedIn, Instagram and Twitter. Links are in the show notes. Dive deep, climb high, can-do leadership in a world of can't.